I think every week our choir needs to do an album, and uh, that's one of the songs that should be on it. Take your Bible this morning and turn, if you will, uh, to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 8. If you're doing your 100 days through the Bible with us, uh, you read this last Monday. Uh, we, uh, Donna and I and our kids, a few years ago, we were living in Ohio, uh, were connected with a school group that did monthly game nights and occasionally our fam family would sign up to host one of those nights and I'm thinking back to the night we hosted Bunko. Have any of you ever played Bunko? I did not know how to play until our Bunko night. Uh, we had teenagers come from all over. We lived in a pretty typical Ohio house which meant uh, that there were two levels and a full basement and so on all three levels, we had bunko tables set up in nearly every room. It was bunko everywhere. And so all of these teenagers came in and I decided I would play with them. I uh, wanted to get to know some of my uh, daughter's friends and some of the teens in the community. And I knew statistically, because it's just a game of chance, that I probably wouldn't win the bunko night. Uh, but I also thought statistically I wouldn't lose the bunko night. Uh, and as it works, and I don't remember exactly what you had to roll, but uh, there were four people at a table and everybody rolls the dice and you go around in circles. If you roll the perfect combination, and like I said, I don't remember what that was, uh, but you would shout, bunko, bunko. And so all over our house, you would shout it loud enough that people could hear you on all three levels. Every minute or two, you'd hear somebody shout, bunko. Over 200 times that night, somebody rolled bunko. The leader, the winner of the tournament that night, rolled it 10 times. Guess how many times your humble pastor rolled bunko? <laughs> Zero. I never even got close to bunko. It really frustrated me. I mean, it bothered me greatly. And, and so I tried to figure out what's wrong. First, I thought maybe there is some secret in how you roll the dice. And maybe everybody knows the dice roll secret and I don't know it. And so I watched closely, you know, how did they roll them? I think we use cups. I don't, I don't recall though, but I, I looked to see if there was a secret. And if there was, I, I never could identify the secret. And so then I thought, you know, this is probably a spiritual issue and maybe it's a Hebrews 10 kind of thing. And there's unconfessed sin in my life and God is disciplining me with bad bunco rolls. And he is just determined that because of my unconfessed sin, there's no way I'm going to roll bunko all night long. And then I thought, well, maybe it's not so much a problem with me, is maybe the, the people I'm playing against just love Jesus more than I love Jesus. And, and you remember the whole story post-resurrection and, and uh, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I thought, well, maybe God's asking me that. And every time I roll the dice, or maybe it's not that I don't love Jesus enough. Maybe it's that Jesus doesn't love me enough. Maybe, you know, just somehow these others are, are so much more in the, you know, in the heart of God than I'm in the heart of God. You know, it was, it was frustrating. And it went on for a couple of hours and I just kept thinking my next role will be Bunko and it never was and it never was and I was so frustrated. How could I, the oldest person in the game, hopefully at least I thought of myself as the wisest person in the game, how could I lose to all of these teenagers over and over and over in a game of Bunko? You know, as, as frustrating as that was, that reminds me of a much, much greater frustration 
that, that we experience in life. Because in life, there seem to be, from time to time, just these random events. They seem to be as random as a roll of dice that determine major directions in our lives. And sometimes the dice come up good and everything goes great. And sometimes it seems like everything just works against us and things turn out in the wrong direction. I I made a list this week. Sometimes in life, people get cancer and they struggle mightily. And some of those people die. And some people will live a long, long life and they never get cancer. It it just seems random, doesn't it? It it makes people ask questions for which nobody really knows the answer. I'll give you another one. Some people seem to hit a marriage jackpot when they choose their future spouse. And they choose someone who turns out better than they could have expected, who is a blessing to them all their days and their entire family. Some people, however, marry disaster on two feet. Don't raise your hand uh, if you (laughs) fall into the second category. So some people, some people are the picture of health and vitality and strength. And some people are not, some people are physically abused or sexually abused as children with no fault of their own. Uh, Some people hit the financial jackpot in life. They choose the right career and the right job and the right education and the the right opportunities and everything just pays off. And, And some people never, it seems, choose the better path. Uh, Some people give birth to healthy babies who thrive uh, physically and mentally. And some people give birth to children with physical problems and limitations. Some people end up in terrible car accidents. Some people have bodies racked with mysterious pain. Some people are born into families where they are afforded every opportunity uh, for success. And some people are born into families where, where it's a struggle every day. Some people experience natural disasters. Uh, some people are abandoned by their parents. It, it seems like there, there are things that happen in our lives, and it, it seems random, really, for, for just from our, our personal perspective. And sometimes things go really, really well, and sometimes they go really, really poorly. And, and, and why is that? And you know, one of the questions that pastors get asked all the time, one of the questions that I get asked, get asked all the time is, why, why has this happened to me? Now, people don't generally ask questions of why when something good has happened, right? Because we assume if something good has happened, it's because we deserve it. But when something bad happens, then people ask pastors the question, uh, why has this happened to me? I don't deserve it. Why am I experiencing this? And honestly, I'll tell you, your pastor doesn't know. I don't know why. I don't know why one person gets cancer and one person does not. I don't know why one person is in an automobile accident and another person is not. I don't know why one person succeeds and, 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 and somebody else struggles who, who does the very same thing. I don't know why. And you should be very careful when you hear people who think they do know why. Uh, There are three times in the New Testament that people went to Jesus when there was something bad that had happened, a disease in one case and a natural disaster in two other cases. And and they, they suggested perhaps this happened for this reason. And in all three cases, Jesus told them that they were wrong. And Jesus gave them a different explanation that they could never have come up with on their own And so we don't know why, and be wary of people who think they do. But 
there's something better to know than why. I can't tell you why those things happen, but I can tell you something better. In fact, if you didn't know why, it wouldn't be nearly as satisfying, satisfying as you, you would expect it to be. So, so here's something better than knowing why I can give you in scripture God's guarantee. God's guarantee. Now, I can't tell you why everything would happen, but I can give you a guarantee that'll give you strength and peace in the midst of the difficulty that'll help you to, to press on, to persevere, and to bring honor and glory to God. And we find God's guarantee in Romans chapter 8, two verses. We may read three verses this morning. Romans chapter 8, let's begin reading in verse 28. The Bible says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And let's read verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Here we see God's guarantee. And no matter what you're going through today, whether it's something that is terrible, something that is awful, or if you're just riding high today, I want to give you a guarantee that applies to your situation right from Romans 28 and 29 that I think will encourage you along the path. So we're going to go back to verse 28. This is going to be a very simple message. I'm just going to take in a couple of words at a time and explain to you the guarantee that God has for us. First of all, we see that God's guarantee is clear. Look at the first two words of verse 28. We know. We know. There are a lot of things you can't know in life. There are a lot of questions. You can ask the questions, but nobody knows the answer. And even when somebody gives you the answer, there's a good chance it's wrong. There are many things we can't know, but he's about to tell us something we do know. We can know. I remember a bunch of years ago, youth pastor, I was a youth pastor in Mississippi, and my senior pastor had uh, gone out of town for some reason. And so I got a call one afternoon that a gentleman in our church, a gentleman that I did not know, he may have been about 60 years old, uh, that he had just lost a child, a uh, grown child, uh, in an automobile accident. And they had told the dad, uh, but they wanted me to go out and just console him. Now, that's one of the scariest assignments I've ever had. I can still remember driving out to his house praying as, as hard as I knew to pray. Oh Lord, give me the words to say. Give me the words to say. How can I console this man who just learned a few minutes ago that uh, one of his children, one of his adult children had died in a car accident. And so I got out there and of course everybody was very upset as you can imagine. Others had gathered there in the home. Uh, but I got this, uh, this father sort of pulled to the side so that I could talk to him, got him calmed down enough that we could have a conversation. And then it got so much worse than I could have ever imagined. He told me a little bit of his story. He said he had five children. And those five children, over the last five years, three of them had died in tragic accidents. And this last one was a car accident. I don't remember the other two. They weren't car accidents, but they were 
unusual events, uh, but, but they had died. And this was his third child. And he was crying. And I remember he grabbed my shoulders and he got in my face and he shook me. And he said, Pastor, tell me, I will not have to bury a fourth child and a fifth child. Promise me that this is the end. Promise me that this won't happen. And of course, I, I couldn't promise that. I, I, I have no idea. There's, there's no way I could say that. But he got angry with me and, and he was shouting at me, promise me, Pastor, promise me I won't have to bury another child. You know, there are just some things that we don't know. We can't know. But there is one thing we can. And that's what he wants to highlight here in verse 28. We know this. He's going to give us a guarantee. You can take this to the bank. What we're going to learn today, absolutely nail it down. We can know this. In a life filled with questions that we can't answer, here's one we can. This is God's guarantee. And you know, a guarantee really is no stronger than really the integrity and the character of the person giving the guarantee. I was uh, at Lowe's last week and I looked at garden hoses and there was one garden hose that had a 100 year guarantee. And I thought, you know, that sounds nice, but, but that's, that's worthless, right? That's just an advertising gimmick. There's no way 90 years from now, after I pass this down to my great grandchildren, that if it gets a leak, they can call on this company to replace or repair that garden hose. It's, it, it's not worth anything because the company doesn't have the power, they don't have the integrity, the character to uphold their guarantee. But God's about to give us a guarantee and he does have the power, the authority, the character we can trust what God's going to tell us. So we see in those first two words that God's guarantee is clear. Now, in the next two or three words, we're going to see that it is complete. It is complete. Look back at verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good. All things work together for the good. Don't discount that little word all. He means that everything you can think of, everything that you ever experience, all things work together for the good. That's this promise. Uh, I think one of the greatest preachers of the late 20th century uh, was Adrian Rogers. And I know he, was a, uh, he is a fan of... Uh, many of you are a fan of Adrian Rogers. I hear people talk about Adrian Rogers and he preached a very famous message on this passage of scripture and he focused on that phrase, all things. And then, so in, in his sermon, then he preached what all the different things are that fall under the category, all things. And so I'm going to borrow some of his, uh, he spent an hour just talking about all things, but let me give you an abbreviated list of all things. Uh, first of all, he said this includes small things. This includes things that, that may seem very insignificant to you, but God uses everything, every little event in our lives, every conversation we have, every, everything we witness, everything God can use for his purposes in our lives. I remember I was a freshman in, uh, at Auburn University, and I took this... Uh, Western civilization class. It was just the, I think it was the, it was in the first week of school and I think it was Wednesday. So it was probably the second day I had attended this class. It was a special section of it. There were just maybe a dozen of us in the class. 
they, uh, they called it uh, technology and civilization. But it was just the Western Civ class like most students have to take. But in this, in this section, on the second day of class, the uh, professor asked us who in the class uh, were Christians. And so I was, I was a new Christian, so I, I raised my hand and there was uh, one other student, she raised her hand and then he laughed at us and he took the rest of the class to berate us over our faith. And he, um, he, he said, I promise you by the end of this uh, term that you will no longer be professing Christians. This is crazy. And I, mean, I don't know what that had to do with Western civilization, but, uh, uh, but he was going to, he was going to just tear down our faith. And so he took a really good shot at it, uh, in the, in this class. And, and so, uh, the young lady who had raised her hand, she, uh, she quickly decided she would just, you know, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm sorry, sir. I shouldn't have raised my hand. Uh, but I was, I was a little bit arrogant, and so I thought I could push back. And so he had you know, reasons why my faith uh, was uh, just foolishness. And, and so I, I pushed back a little bit and quickly found out uh, that he was way smarter than I was, that he knew way more than I knew. He was much better communicator. He was way more prepared, and he humiliated me in front of those other students. Now, I would like a redo, <laughs> uh, but I, um, I imagine he's gone on uh, to his reward, whatever that might be. Uh, but at the time, uh, he just chewed me up and spit me out. And when the class was over, I was, I was, I don't know if I've ever been more embarrassed in my life. Uh, we were uh, in, a, in a classroom building, it's, it's 10 or 12 stories tall, and so everybody went down elevators, and I, I was so embarrassed I couldn't even go down the elevator uh, with the other students. I, was, I don't remember if I slipped in a restroom or something, but I just waited for everybody else to go. And when the hallways were clear, then I got on the elevator. I didn't want to see anybody. And I'll never forget this. Uh, the elevator doors closed, and on the back of the elevator doors, there was a sign, uh, just a little flyer, said Covenant University Fellowship. Uh, Thursday nights, I think this was a Wednesday morning, Thursday nights, meet in some room, some building. And I thought, I need to go there. I, mean, I am desperate right now. I need to go there. And I did. And I, and I met some friends and I met some wise leaders. And it was through that ministry, which I, I Googled it this week, doesn't even exist. Or, or if it does, it's changed its name uh, through the years. Uh, but it was through that ministry that God called me to the ministry called me to preach. I was going in a different direction and God used that to uh, help me recognize God's call on my life. So here's, here's the point. Even something as insignificant as a poster on the back of an elevator door, there is nothing so small God can't use it for his purposes in your life. Whatever you go through, big or small, significant or insignificant, know this, God will use it for his good. So all things include small things. All things include sorrowful things, difficult things. You think about David, King David. Uh, he really became famous when he did what? When he defeated Goliath, uh, the great uh, giant of a Philistine, uh, taunting the armies of Israel, and David defeats Goliath. And, but if you think back through the story, what was the foundation of David's success? 
the foundation of his success is, is that he had faced the wild animals when he was a shepherd that were seeking to uh, take his sheep away and he fought those wild animals, lions and bears, and he was successful in those battles. And so when he stands before Goliath, he says, God rescued me when I fought the wild animals, God will rescue me today. But here's the lesson to learn. It was the difficulty of the wild animals that God used to strengthen David for the greatest battle of his life. And even though those, those attacks would have been terrible things, sorrowful things, difficult things, it was still something that God used. I'm sure after the, after the attack of the lions and the bears that, that David would have been beat up and wounded and hurting and it was difficult, yet, yet it was through the difficulty that God qualified him for the greatest victory in his life. God, when he says that he will use all things together for the good, he means the small things and he means the sorrowful things. Uh, do you know the story, the Old Testament story of Joseph? Joseph was a man, God used Joseph to uh, lead the, the nation of Egypt for a while through a famine. But more importantly, God used Joseph to rescue his family, uh, the Jews, uh, from starvation. But Joseph, it seemed, just always ran into difficulty. People were so cruel to Joseph. And Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers then he becomes a slave and his master, his master's wife rather, accuses him of a crime he was not guilty of. And then he gets abandoned in a prison. Everything in Joseph's life, every time he turned around, there was something terrible that was happening that was not his fault. But he gets to the, you get to the end of the story and he finally gets an opportunity to see his brothers that had really started all of this string of bad luck. And, and here's what he says to them. You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result. See, when it says God works through all things to bring about his good, he includes sorrowful things. David said this in Psalm 119.71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. David said, it's through the hardships that God has strengthened me and taught me to, to live for you. So uh, it's, it, it, all things include small things and sorrowful things. Adrian Rogers said that it also included satanic things. That's hard to believe. But God even takes the works of Satan and uses those things for his good. You take, for instance, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary uh, that the church has ever known. And he was the person who was uh, the human tool anyway that, that was used to move the gospel really from Jerusalem all the way to Europe and then from Europe uh, throughout the world. Uh, but wow, what do, you, what do you see in Paul's life that, that made him so successful? It wasn't his reputation. Paul had a terrible reputation. He was a killer of Christians. It wasn't his ability to speak. The Bible says that he was a poor speaker. It wasn't his strength and his health. The Bible teaches us that he was a sickly man. What was it that made Paul great? Well, perhaps it was the work of Satan. 
Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was given a messenger of Satan, that, that Satan was allowed to do something in his life. And we don't know what it was, but it was something difficult and terrible. And he says it was through that that he was able to recognize that in his weakness, Christ's strength would prevail. And Paul's secret to success turned out to be the satanic influence that happened in his life. See, God works all things together for good. And, and then there's another category uh, that Dr. Rogers says, even sinful things, sinful things. Because I know what you're thinking. I know that God will use catastrophes and difficulties in my life, but what if what I'm going through is my own fault? What if, what, what if I lost my job, but I lost it because it's my fault? What, what, what if I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble because it's my fault? What if I'm suffering, but I'm suffering because of something I did? Can God even use that? See, here's the wonderful thing about God's sovereignty and God's grace. God uses all things, even sinful things. I, I love this verse that I want to point you toward in a moment. Uh, it tells us of, of, of what Jesus said to Simon Peter before Simon sinned and denied Jesus. So I'll, I'll tell you what happened, and then we'll look at what Jesus said before that. When Jesus was arrested, uh, Peter, Simon Peter, he's often called in the Bible, he uh, denied knowing Jesus. And in this high-pressure moment, somebody said, you're, you're with Jesus. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with Jesus. I don't even know who that man is. And he denies Jesus three times. What a terrible thing to do. In Jesus' uh, most difficult hour, perhaps, or on his most difficult day, we should say, uh, Peter, one of his closest companions, denied him. Terrible sin. But listen to what Jesus said before that happened. Luke 22, 31 Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus said, Peter, you're about to go through a tough time and Satan is going to tempt you and you're going to fail. But after you fail, you will turn back to me and I will use your sin your failure to strengthen the brothers. And the early church was strengthened by the story of, of, uh, of Peter's sin and his restoration. See, God can even work through sinful things to bring about his good. There's no greater example of that than the apostle Paul that we talked about a moment ago. Two weeks ago, we were preaching from Acts chapter six and Acts chapter seven, and we saw that there was a man by the name of Stephen who proclaimed the resurrection of Christ and people stoned him to death. Well, while he was being stoned to death, Paul, he was called Saul at the time, was watching this and he agreed with it. And he saw Stephen being stoned to death and we said that there was a seed planted in Paul's heart then that would later lead to his, uh, his conversion. But let me read to you the very next verse. So the story of Stephen, that's Acts chapter six, and he's stoned in Acts chapter seven. He dies at the end of the chapter. And the very next verse, Acts chapter eight, verse one says this. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Saul or Paul, he agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of, of Judea and Samaria. And so the church 
is under great pressure. There's all kind of violence and people are having to flee. And then uh, verse three tells us who was leading that. It says, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. It was Paul who was doing all these terrible things. Now you fast forward a few years, Paul guilty of this notorious sin and the Bible says then in 1 Timothy 1.16, I won't, I won't read the verse, we'll run out of time, but, but God says now Paul is a trophy of God's grace. That, that he was the worst sinner, but now because God has forgiven him and restored him, now when people see Paul, they say, they say what, what incredible grace God has. What forgiveness comes from the Lord. And they would have never said that had Paul not first been such a terrible sinner. What I'm telling you is not that sin's okay, but that when the Bible says God uses all things together for his good, he even includes our sin. And so we see that the guarantee is clear. We see that it is complete. I want you to see next that it is secure. The grammar of this verse is, is confusing. Um, it, it says in, in the Bible that I'm reading, uh, we know that all things work together for good. Uh, that would lead you to believe if you were not careful that it's the things that work together for good. It says all things work together for good. And it leaves out the fact that God is the one who works all things together for good. Some of your Bibles will insert that. Uh, in, in fact, one, one Bible says, uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, that's not uh, probably an accurate translation of the grammar, but it is a good reminder of what this whole passage is about. It is God who is doing this. And this is just a quick point, but, but oftentimes people have this attitude in life, things are just going to work out. It, you know, everything comes out in the wash. It's going to be okay in the end. Don't say that as a Christian. It, it, things don't just work out. God works things out. There's a difference. If, you, if, you're, if your life philosophy is things will work out, then, then you're discounting the fact that God's in control. No, God will work things out according to his word. That's how things are going to work out. Things don't just work out. God causes things to happen. And he is secure. He is in control of what is going to happen. And then that brings us to the, to the next part of this, this verse, the next phrase. And we're going to learn that God's guarantee is limited. Notice it says in verse 28 again, for those he foreknew, he also predestined, uh, I'm sorry, verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So the guarantee is limited in, in one sense. It's only for people who love God and are called according to his purposes. You know, one of the mistakes that people often make when they're reading the Bible is, is that they just assume that every promise in the Bible is to every person. Uh, sometimes people will do their devotions out of these God's promises books. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have a couple of those in my office that people have given me through the years. It's just a list of all the promises in the Bible. And those can be very encouraging to us, but we have to be very careful with that. Why? Because those are great promises, but they're not all promises to you. 
Okay, so you can't just read those and say, well, this is what God's going to do. This is what God's going to do. Because oftentimes God's promises are qualified. And in this case, God's promise is qualified. It says God will work out all things together for the good for a certain group of people, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Now, who are those who love God called according to his purposes? Those are people who have responded to the grace of God. They have asked God to forgive them. They have repented of their sins. They have put their faith in God. They've trusted what Jesus has done on the cross and they have been adopted into the family of God. This is for believers. He says that he will work all things together for the good for those who are in his family. This is not for everybody. This is only for the children of God. In fact, you could say that the opposite of this is also true. Not only does God work all things together for the good for those that love God, but God works all things together for their bad if people don't love God. For those who are not children of God, everything's going to work out in the other direction. In fact, every blessing, if you don't know Christ, every blessing you've experienced in this life will testify against you in eternity that you didn't turn to Christ. That God in the judgment will remind you of all the good things he's given you and all of the great days you've had and all the blessings that came from heaven. And he'll say that every single one of those, those were tools that God was seeking to use to help you understand that you have a God in heaven who loves you. And all of those good things will testify against you. All of the difficult things you faced. You will see in eternity, in judgment, that all of those things were tools in God's hand to try to get you to call out on him and to cry out to him and to run to him. Every message you've heard will be a testimony against you. Every message you didn't hear but you should have heard will be a testimony against you in eternity. See, God works all things together for the good, for for, for those who love God. But for those who are not, for those who have not trusted in Christ and received his forgiveness, though, for those people, all things will work against you uh, in judgment and in eternity. And then there's one last thing we see here, in, and it's how specific is this uh, guarantee. It is specific. Uh, we, we, we look back in verse 29. Uh, what we saw in verse 28, he talked about all things will work together for the good But what is the good? What what is he trying to do? Well, verse 29 tells us, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, there's a lot there that we could unpack that we don't have time for this morning, uh, but we should at least um, uh, mention it. Uh, Those he foreknew reminds us that God knows everything and God knows even before things happen, what's going to happen. He foreknew these things. That speaks to his Um, omniscience, God knows everything. Uh, So those he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined. So God not only knows everything, God determines everything. God is in control. So one speaks to his omniscience, the other speaks to his omnipotence. But then we see this, this next part, which is where our focus will be this morning. To be conformed to the image of his son. What is God trying to accomplish in our lives? He's trying to form the character of Christ in us. 
He wants to use everything, the good and the bad, the small, the significant, uh, the sinful, the satanic, the sorrowful, everything that happens in our lives, all of those things he's trying to use to bring about the character of Christ in our lives. Uh, sometimes people think, well, God's, God's just, just there to make me happy. No, God's, God's goal is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy, as people have said. Now, God wants you to be happy as well, because there's happiness and holiness. But God's chief aim is not to make your life easy. God's chief aim is to make your character match the character of Christ. God would rather have you limp into heaven than strut into hell God's working on your character. And everything that happens, you go to the hospital, God's working to build the character of Christ in you. You get a promotion at work, God's working to build the character of Christ in you. Something difficult happens, something wonderful happens. We should look for how God's using that to bring us closer to him. This is a very specific guarantee. We know that God's gonna do this and then he's gonna use all things to bring about the good, which is to form the character of Christ in us. So what do we do with this, with this guarantee? Well, there are a lot of things. First of all, we can just rest in it. When you're going through difficulties, when life is hard, rest in this guarantee that no matter how difficult, God's using what you're going through to accomplish his purposes in your life. And then we need to communicate it. This needs to be the message that we have for people around us when they're going through difficulties. If you are a child of God, God will use even what you're going through to accomplish his purposes in your life. We need to say that over and over and over. We need to sound like a broken record. When people around us go through difficulties, that's what they need to hear. God will use this to accomplish his purposes. And if you're a follower of God, God will use this significantly in your life. And then we tell them how they can become a uh, follower of God. But then the final thing we need to do with this is just simply to cooperate with it. This is God's promise. This is God's guarantee. But it's a guarantee that God wants us to cooperate with. When we go through hard times, when we go through great times, when something significant happens in our lives, we should pray this prayer. Show me, Lord, how the present circumstance can cause the character of Christ to be formed in me. When, when, when you're struggling, when you're hurting, when, when you're disappointed, when, when you're frustrated, when you're stressed out, stop and ask the Lord, Lord, I know your guarantee. I know it and I believe it. You work all things together. And what I'm going through right now is one of those things. Show me how I can cooperate with what you're trying to do to form the character of Christ in me. And I remember when my, when my oldest two girls were learning uh, multiplication tables, we, we've been a lot nicer to our third daughter, uh, but uh, our, our first two daughters, uh, we would make them do these math problems over and over and over and over. And, and they, they hated it. They hated having to do long division and all this multiplication. And they, they were homeschooled at the time and uh, they, they hated it. And they'd want to know how Many of these do we have to do? How many days and days do we have to fill out all these math forms? How many long division problems do we have to do? And you know what the answer is? You got to do them till you learn it. You know, if, if, if you don't learn it, you're going to have to do them every day for the rest of your life or to, until you turn 18 and run away from home. 
You know, that's you. I think, I think we, we, the same lesson here. We can cooperate with the Lord and we can let God use those tools to form the character of Christ in us. Or we can not cooperate. And our God, though, is so loving, he will continue to introduce difficulty because he loves us until we learn the character of Christ. At some point, let's look at our circumstances and say, okay, I'm ready to learn this. I don't, I don't need this lesson again, Lord. I will learn it today. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. God's grace and mercy is so wonderful that, that he loves us so much that he's going to use every situation in our lives to bring about his purposes. Isn't that wonderful? That is his guarantee if we know Christ is our Savior. If this morning you don't know Christ, uh, you need this guarantee. You need to live under this promise. Would you recognize that Christ has died for your sins? Would you embrace that, trust that, turn from your sins and surrender to Christ? Would you pray a prayer like this? Father, I know I've sinned. Father, I know my sin, there are consequences. Sin deserves death but I also know you love me and you have provided a way. And I pray that through what Jesus has done and only what Jesus has done, that you will forgive my sins and I turn and trust you with that today. Would you pray that prayer? Father, thank you that you are good to your word and that all things work together for your good, for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you.